hello and welcome. I am Peter Beinart, a non-resident fellow at the Foundation for Middle East Peace. Welcome to today's uh, truly important conversation, the Nakba and its generational impact on Palestinian lives, memory, identity, and a future rooted in justice, co-hosted by FMEP and Project 48. A word about our hosts. Project 48 educates US audiences about the Nakba, which originated with the mass expulsion of the indigenous Palestinian population from their homes and lands during the creation of the State of Israel in 1948. P48 centers Palestinian scholarship and testimonies in order to accurately convey the generational impact of this foundational event and the realities of the ongoing Nakba, characterized by seven decades of dispossession and a denial of basic human rights. FMAP is a Washington DC based foundation that works for justice in Palestine, Israel by grant making, publishing original research and online programming. And to begin, the Nakba, the displacement of over 750,000 Palestinians from their homeland from 1947 to 1949 is among the root causes of the conflict in Palestine, Israel and critical to understanding the failure of the decades long peace process and the level of justice and reparations required to achieve a sustainable future. Today, we will hear the personal stories of those who have survived the ethnic cleansing of their cities and villages, learn from them and their descendants how the trauma of the Nakba and Israel's ongoing policies of erasure have shaped their lives. We'll also ask about their visions for the future, what justice looks like, and how they sustain connections to their homeland from the diaspora. I'm honored to be joined today by the survivors of the 1948 Nakba and their descendants. Nida El-Muti, born in Jericho to Fatma Radwan, a survivor of the 1948 Dariusin massacre. Nida was raised in Ramallah and at 16 immigrated to New Jersey with her mother. Nida put herself through school at Rutgers University, earned a master's in human psychology and worked at Robert Wood Johnson in the Department of Microbiology and at Rutgers Medical School as a senior technologist in the IVF program. For 15 years, Nida taught anatomy and physiology at Eastern Illinois University. She is currently retired and living in Chicago. Dina Elmuti, uh, born in Denton, Texas. Dina grew up in a small town in East Central Illinois and is now a recent transplant back to Texas, specifically Houston. The granddaughter of Fatima Radwan, who lived through the 1948 Nakba. Dina is the mother of two little boys and a trauma clinician who has worked for organizations including Defense for Children International Palestine, the Treatment and Rehabilitation Center for Victims of Torture and various social service organizations serving children who have experienced early childhood trauma. Dina attended the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign for undergrad and earned a master's in social work at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Dina grew up on the hyphen, both Palestinian and American, on a steady diet of Edward Said, Malcolm X, and her grandmother Fatima's tireless stories that fundamentally changed the trajectory of her life and work. And finally, Hassan Hamimi, born in Jaffa, Palestine in 1932. Hassan was educated at the Christian Brothers College in Jaffa until he was forced to flee on a cargo ship at age 15 with 3,000 people during the Nakba. At, at 18, after three years at the National College of Shufet and the American University of Beirut, Hassan had to abandon his education to help support his family by working for the oil company Aramco in Saudi Arabia, where he lived in a desert labor camp. He completed his engineering education at the University of Nottingham, England, and joined Procter & Gamble, where he launched manufacturing operations in Iraq and Saudi Arabia, and with increasing responsibilities, led large projects in several parts of the world. Father to three daughters and a stepson living on four continents, Hassan has served organizations such as the Arab American Association and Palestine Human Rights Campaign, among others, focusing on civil and human rights for all, advancement of Arab Americans, and interfaith work a US citizen for 37 years, a citizen of the world for nearly 70, and with 25 country moves behind him, Hassan, now 89, continues to grow and share as a retiree in Florida. To ground us in the facts about the Nakba, its origins and its impact, and the impact it has had on generations of Palestinian families. Nida, um, can you talk um, to us about being Fatima's daughter, uh, about being raised on your mother's story of loss yeah survival and trauma. Uh, thank you, Peter. <clears throat> this is really hard since she just uh, passed away. It's, uh, it's hard to see her. Um, <clears throat> yes, actually, um, if I could, I could, I would like to mention my grandmother, 
my grandmother Aziza who lived with us and she actually helped shape me and raise me with my mother. My mother was um, only like nine years old, but my grandmother who at age of 36, she lost her husband. She had eight children to raise and we just at night in, during the winter times, we would huddle around um, a little um, heater and she will tell us stories. And I remember as a child, I would just look at her haggard face and I'd say, um, I would be sad. But as I got older and I heard the stories more so from my mother, I became really angry. Um, angry at these atrocities. Um, as one, one strong woman told me, we can't say ethnic cleansing because ethnic cleansing means we're dirty people. It's an atrocity that happened. And this atrocity continues to happen. This woman at age 36, my grandmother, had to raise eight children on her own, begging um, that it's difficult to take on her four daughters and doing laundry for four straight days. My grandmother would um, describe to me that she had to do it by hand. And at the end of the day, her hand would bleed from how much she had to clean the laundry. And um, so it, it really resonated with me and, and it shaped me. And I was very, very sad at age 16 when I, when I came to the United States and I still miss it. I've been here for 41 years and my, my heart is always in Palestine, in Palestine. Um, so yeah, it's it also, I gotta give credit to my grandmother, Aziza and, and my mother, Fatima, who always talked about Dariusian and like Lena said, not with hatred, but with fond memories about the village, the house and what they've lost. And I just can't fathom. I can't fathom losing my house. And I have, uh, it, so it's really, really hard. It's very difficult. Um, uh, Dina, I wanna to go to you before we go to Hassan. Um, I want, uh, uh, as, as Yida's daughter, as Fatima's granddaughter, um, I wanna, if you can just talk about what the impact of, of this experience has been on, on your life? I mean, I grew up so far removed from the horrors of the Nakba and the atrocities committed at Deir Yassin, but I've lived with the snapshots my entire life. Um, as a child, I became the silent witness to my grandmother's stories. They the string of her words connected me to her, uh, to the beautiful village. She would tell the stories and I would smell the chubbiz tabun, the, the bread baking in the village's bakery and the fragrance of the almond trees that you know she was picking in the, I mean, they still bear witness. Um, my grandmother's stories were absolutely terrifying, but they were so beautifully alive and they were mesmerizing. Um, in so many ways, they contained and transformed these fears and they perpetuated steadfast hope, uh, steadfastness and resistance. And I hungered for these stories all the time. I just want to hear them again and again and again uh, till they became a part of me uh, down to like the marrow of my bones. They were the connective tissue of my childhood. And when I look back, I realize that these were stories about trauma, uh, stories as carriers of transgenerational trauma. Um, her stories of Nekba merged with my own childhood memories, so much so that they became memory implants that I've retained as like first inscriptions of my own history, which is weird to think about, but uh, she would tell me the stories and my memories of these stories had an almost like uncanny like deja vu quality, as if like I lived through them myself. Um, but because of her, and I owe, I owe it to her, because of her stories and narrative, I've known 
the world of acute agony and the mockery of what human life has been reduced to for the Palestinian people. Every massacre, every assault carried out in Zionism's calculated desire for more and more and more control adds another layer to this transgenerational transmission of trauma for Palestinians everywhere, not just living in Palestine, but in the diaspora everywhere. And, you know, like other children, many children and grandchildren of a Nekba, uh, survivors can attest, um, I guess I've absorbed some of the psychological burdens of, you know, parents and grandparents, and I share in their grief and terror as if I've experienced it myself. And so much so that I don't think it's a coincidence that I became a social worker and that I'm fascinated um, and, you know, much of my professional interest has focused on individual and collective trauma, generational trauma, developmental trauma. Um, I grew up hearing these stories with traumatic cores and their broken images and fragmented scenes, and they just remain inside of me like ruins of memory, but I can't disconnect from it. So, so much of her stories of resilience and steadfastness have impacted me and had such a profound prominent effect on my life she played such a prominent role in my life a second mother so I owe her everything she changed the whole trajectory of my life thank you forgive me I'm just going to stand up so the light goes on in my office it's a, a silly technological thing um, um thank you so much for that Dina I, I think um so much of what you said will be so resonant um, for so many um, Jews who've grown up around the grandchildren of Holocaust survivors. Exactly. I, I think that yeah. the tremendous challenge for us um, as Jews is to use our experience of international intergenerational trauma to be able to hear and listen rather than to use it as a source of fear to shut mm -hmm. down. Um, exactly. and to, because shutting down is also a way of just perpetuating that violence. Um, so right. um, thank you so right. much. Um, Hassan, um, um, you were grew up in in Jaffa. Um, can you can you tell us a bit about what your life was like in Jaffa before the Nakba? What was what was lost, um, and and also tell us what happened to you during the Nakba, including the, the 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 journey by boat that you had to take from Jaffa. Please tell us that that story. Yes, Peter. Um, you know, I want to talk about. Uh, my life from a purely personal standpoint. I lived a charmed life in, a, in a, an integrated neighborhood in an integrated town called Jaffa. And uh, integrated where at school, I went to this Christian brother's school that had uh, Palestinian Christian boys, Palestinian Jewish boys and Palestinian Muslim boys. And we, we all were you know, my, one of my teachers, my English teacher was a, a Jewish teacher who had emigrated from Czechoslovakia. And we were 13, 14. When we started playing up a little bit, he would, he would try to say to us, you are the future leaders of this country. Behave yourself. <laughs> it's kind of interesting. Um, the, uh, the neighborhood I lived in, uh, on the west side, uh, it's only the only families are still there. They are the Andrawas's three sisters who were little kids when I, we were playing in the in the uh, street in the area outside, and uh, they're still there. They're all uh, single. When I first met them in 1993, first time I went back to Jaffa, uh, it was a sheer kind of recreation of a memory of childhood, which was, which was fascinating. And I rang the doorbell. They said, who in Arabic? And I said, Hassan, Hassan Hamami. Hassan Hamami, our neighbor? Yes. Wait a minute. And they all came out. They were, at that time, they were in their 50s. And I asked, are you not married? They said, no, we never got married. There was no one to be married to. When, when Jaffa had been cleared out of over 100,000 people, there were 3,000 people left. 
their family was one of the exceptions, one of those 3,000. You know, um, the, uh, the, I could talk about a lot of things from my childhood, as I said, which was charmed when for one year, when I was maybe six or seven, my father and mother bought us a lot of toys in the house. It wasn't a holiday, it wasn't a birthday. We didn't understand my brother Hussein, who's two years younger than me, and I didn't understand why until one morning we saw uh, Mr. Abdurrahim, who was the circumciser. He was the circumciser. He had this little box with all his tools and he had an appointment and he came. We tried to run away, of course. It, uh, it was, it was uh, you know, a, a bit of a, a dramatic act, but we settled down with, uh, with a few days of, uh, of not wearing pants, but wearing a robe to avoid, you know, to, to fasten, to speed up the process of uh, healing. I could talk about, about uh, the first bicycle that I, my father bought at the end of the war when things could be started again. And I would ride this bicycle to school. I was at that time, maybe 13, 14. And this was before all the trouble started. And I would cycle along the beach south of Jaffa. There was a, a, a Jewish village. It was called Bat Yam in Hebrew, Bet Vegan as we knew it. And it had one very, very tall building, high building, about five stories high. It was a beer brewery. But the beer brewery, looking on the north side of the wall of the beer brewery, did not have any windows. It had gun slits. It was kind of interesting. We, we never paid attention to that. We, and another time I would go cycling inland from Batyam and there was this little colony called Holon. It's now called, it's a much bigger neighborhood now of Tel Aviv Yafo. And it had about 15 houses, all white, all single story. And it was supposed to be a, a kibbutz but there wasn't a single blade of grass there. It was all of the people who lived there would catch the bus in the morning and would see them in the bus heading for Tel Aviv for their work. So my, as I, as I rethought of that, it was kind of part of, part of the process of, of immigration of European Jews. They were all European Jews who were there. Uh, I, could, I could talk about our school trip uh, one of the schools. I, I would. I'd love to hear also about to talking about what actually happened to you during during those events in forty seven and forty eight when Jaffa was cleared out. Personally, on a personal level, uh, at at school, a group of us students from the Frere School, the Al Amriya, and the also the three high schools, big high schools in town, got together and decided to learn to how to do first aid, and we went and went through the practice of first aid and, uh, and lived through that and everyone had to go, you know, that's, that's what we did. And so uh, we had first aid duty. The thing that happened, started happening is this charmed life that I was describing started getting shredded one piece at a time. It wasn't there you're seeing first. The very first, very first uh, massacre took place in December, 1947. And it was a, a Sheikh and Hawassi village massacres. It was an attacker, an attack on the Haifa oil refinery workers who were going by train, several hundred of them, 150 to 200 Palmach and Stern gang people attacked them and committed a massacre. How did we learn about it? It was in, all over the papers. Jaffa had three daily papers at Difa, Palestine, and Ashab, meaning defense, Palestine, meaning Palestine, Ashab is the people. And there were pictures of it. In February, there was another one, Sasa. In February, there was a third one. And then, and then we had, we had the, the big event, which was, uh, which was Darius seen, And everybody got scared out of their mind because we were defenseless, literally defenseless. Following Darius seen, there was, another attack within the center of Jaffa, two, two British uh, jeeps, 
that had been stolen from the British army had been laid out with bombs and they were, they were set off in the center of Jaffa next to the building that's called the Sarai, which used to be the Ottoman governor's place, had been, it had been changed into an orphanage with approximately 100 orphans in them and their caretakers. That building was completely flattened. So was the bank on the other side of the street there, Barclays Bank. So was the pharmacy next to it. And so the, the thing that, that, that tied that up was the previous attack in, in Dariusin. And we all saw the pictures of the attack of Dariusin, not as it was taken, but afterwards they were, and they were terrifying pictures. We were scared out of our minds. So when Jaffa was bombed right in its heart, people were actually in a panic. We were in a panic. Uh, we had to, my father bought tickets on a ship called the SS Argentina, but the SS Argentina could not go into the port. So it anchored outside and it was shelved. So it moved out and there was no sense of any capability to defend ourselves because we were getting bombed literally 24 hours a day, seven days a week, constantly. And this shows up later on in the, in the diaries of, uh, of several of, uh, of the leaders of, uh, we're going to go into detail. So we had to pack everything up, forget about the tickets on the ship and go down to the port of, with four or five suitcases and a few precious things. And we got into one of those, uh, uh, boats which were huge cargo boats which are rowed by hand that used to carry boxes of oranges to, to the ships and it carried us to this the only boat which was a, a hand-built uh, sailing cargo boat and there were nearly 3,000 people on it. Uh, we're not packed like sardines, sardines are packed like this, we were packed like this, literally. And about maybe five or six feet away from where I was, a lady on the first night that we had been on this ship, on this boat, aborted. And she was immediately surrounded by other women. They washed her, they wrapped the boy. And the first thing in the morning, they wrapped the, the baby and, uh, and had a prayer on him and threw him in the sea. We were in this boat for three days, usually the trip from Jaffa to Beirut in a ship usually takes maybe about 10 or 12 hours. This was three days because it was a cargo sailing boat. It was used to carry cargo. It ran out of water after six hours. So there was no comfort, nothing. Whoever was sick had to take care of to throw up. We arrived in, uh, in uh, Tyre, in Sumur, in southern Lebanon. And we were welcomed by people who, you know, literally were embraced us. That was the last time I, I saw Jaffa at age 15. The next time I saw Jaffa, I saw it in 1993, the year after I retired and I'd become a US citizen and I was able to, to travel. And my revisit to Jaffa was like, I was plugged in not physically only, but in memory, in where the places are, every street, every corner, every school, every beach. And the, uh, the thing about, about my memory of Jaffa is, is that it is essentially my roots. And it became my roots for a variety of reasons, because for a number of years, no one would talk a word about, about uh, the Nakba. It was kind of taboo because it was, it was this catastrophe that happened. When I was in Saudi Arabia, I went to work, mm. I went to work in, in uh, the only job I could get. It, was, it paid me at the time $110 a month, equivalent of that. I, uh, it, was, it was great because it was uh, a way I could help my dad, get my, support my parents. But, but the thing about, about Jaffa for me is this, glorious memory of this enchanted city, which was integrated. At one point, we had one Jewish member of city council of Jaffa, 
who was a Jewish member. He was a Jewish Palestinian. Many of my Jewish friends here in the United States, when I talk about, to them about Jewish Palestinians, they would say, there are no Jewish Palestinians. What, what, what are they? They were there for years. They were there for generations. Um, the, the, uh, the, Son, I want to I wanna hear this last point, but then I want to make sure we get a chance to go back to Nida and, and Dina. That, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. Good. Um, Thank you. We'll come back. We'll come back uh, to, 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 to this. I, um, I'm um, very much interested. Um, um, uh, Dina, I wanted to, to go back to you. Um, you, you. As you said, you, you work on trauma. This is, this is the work that you do. And um, I, one of the, um, I think, uh, uh, very particular things about, um, about the Nakba is not, uh, um, is not just that it, it occurred, but that its existence is not uh, generally, it's not widely acknowledged, or at least mm -hmm. it's, it's very, very heavily contested. Just, mm -hmm. just yesterday, we found out that there's a book which is being published about Der Yassin called The Massacre That Never Was um, by, uh, and I say this with enormous shame, by, by one of the most prominent um, publishers of, of Jewish religious texts. Uh, some, some of those texts I have myself that published this book. So what I'm interested in is for you to talk about what is the impact on people's, on, um, uh, on intergenerational trauma of the fact that this experience that people have experienced in their own families is rejected or denied, or at the very least not widely acknowledged, even in the United States. Yeah, absolutely. Undoubtedly. I mean, And Nekba, and Nekba resonates in the Palestinian collective memory with chilling significance. You know, for us, it remains a part of our interminable trauma, a trauma that's neither post nor past, but perpetual. It's not a post-traumatic thing. It is perpetual, constantly speaking. This, you know, distortion, denial, it causes trauma. Now, what is trauma? Physically speaking, trauma is blunt damage to the body. It's premeditated, systematic degradation of humanity. It's an assault on every single sense, your visual, auditory, olfactory. Psychologically, it sends shockwaves through your sense of self, your security, your connection with others. It renders entire communities essentially silenced and invisible for generations. They are degraded and dehumanized, re relegated to just mere afterthoughts. They're abstract, you know? And the thing about the trauma of a Nekba is it was never properly buried. So there exists this heritability of this trauma, the trauma that our own grandparents experienced continues to reverberate in our own identities decades later. So the witnesses and survivors continue to carry these burdens of psychological pain and then they pass it on to ch their children, their grandchildren. So we're all inescapably part of this. For a lot of survivors, the violence and atrocities they experienced are essentially unspeakable. So what does that mean? It's because the communicative act of speaking about it denies the meaning and purpose of words. And the violence they experience, this violence is a denial of voice, but it's also a refusal to listen. So yeah, oh no, Darius never happened. This never happened. It's all lies, it's all fabrication. This violence obliterates the power of words to reach to the hearts and minds of other human beings. So it renders entire generations mute and invisible. And that's what's that's what we see across generation. This trauma of a Nekba has degraded and dehumanized and it is purposeful. And what happens with like this unspeakable uh, bit to it, the silence, it perpetuates the trauma. It shrouds and protects it, in fact. And the silence or trying to silence 
narratives, trying to come out with, you know, books that, you know, completely discount and discredit. Um, the silence is covered up by empty speech, lip service, a muteness handed down as shards of like splintered effect. Um, and this is what's been happening for over 73 years. Zionists have, you know, continue to concoct these ridiculous narratives to silence the past, to coldly distance information through like a clutter of defensive storytelling and like intended to conceal their atrocities, to continue to mute the pain and suffering inflicted on an entire people that they've attempted to erase and to fill this void of terror. And it's an attack on memory. And it's not confined to individual memory, but it comprises the collective transgenerational memory of the Palestinian people. Um, you know, these memories are passed down from generation to generation, most immediately through stories told or the written word, but this is very deliberate. It is very deliberate, it is concocted, it is designed to keep people mute. And this is what it means to be unspeakable. This unspeakable, these unspeakable atrocities. They're unspeakable because they've completely obliterated the power of words um, to reach the hearts and minds of the, the general public. It's for a reason. It's very deliberate. Um, I want to just remind people they can put questions in the chat. Um, um, and um, Hassan, I want to I want to go back to, to, to you. Um, um, you are of that generation that experienced 1948, um, and um, and then yet had to try to live your lives after that. A whole generation of Palestinians dispersed all across, you know, the, the Middle East, all across the world. Um, uh, how did you, how did you try to pick up and, and, and create a, a, a new life? And how did the, the trauma of that experience um, shape your identity? And, and, and how has it shaped the identity of other Palestinians you know who went through those experiences in 1947, 1948, 1949? Uh, Hassan? Oh, sure, certainly. I, yes, I, uh, this is, um, it, it's, it's like a, a continuous rebirth, a continuous redevelopment. Uh, my, um, from, from this uh, uh, charmed childhood in Jaffa to a labor camp in Saudi Arabia, where I, uh, I, uh, that was what was available. I uh, essentially uh, focused myself on and help. I've got to help my parents, got to survive myself and got to improve myself. And uh, uh, starting with with the measly job that I had, which was being a translator, I found another job that made the same amount of money. But literally, my focus was, I've got to get out of here. I've got to get into a better, better where, where I can survive and, and improve myself. Education was the key. That was part of the character that was built into my Art, all of us, my brothers and sisters from our parents, and really from the generation we came in. And with the thinking that, you know, we had this terribly good life, this fantastic life. We have a way to try to find and get it back. Now, we were in no situation. And so for me, I aimed to go back to school, went back to school to, to, to England and uh, got my education. That's where I met my first wife. Uh, she fell in love with Palestine. She'd never seen it. She fell in love with the Palestinian history through a passion to, to help uh, learn and teach about it, to resolve it. For me, that was a constant struggle to try and be recognized as not as a, a uh, 
stateless person or as a person who's being denied that there was ever a Palestine, but there was this my roots, my life. So there was this emotional, sentimental, as well as, as uh, uh, the character to strive to get better. And work was work and education, seeking to improve whatever I could uh, was, was the key. But today, myself and my eight siblings live on four continents. Part of the Mecca is that we can't celebrate. We can't just walk and see each other. With my children and their cousins, it's, it's even further out. Uh, I celebrated my birthday a week and a half ago, and I had a, a Zoom meeting with a daughter in Jerusalem, daughter in France, a daughter in Texas, a granddaughter in, in uh, New York, a granddaughter in Boston. So here we are, the, uh, the generation of Palestinians that I came from are spread out. We have lost our unity, our physical geographic unity, but we haven't lost our passion. We haven't lost our, our desire for, for justice, for peace, for equality. And that translated for me personally, whenever I had a chance to do something about outside of work, I was fortunate, blessed in being a co-founder of the first Jewish-Arab dialogue group in the Midwest in 1978, in the basement of our house. Uh, there were 15 people from each side. About half of them from each side couldn't take the, the idea of, uh, of dialogue and they fell, they fell out. The others, all of the Jewish uh, members of the dialogue were doctoral um, students in Hebrew Union College, the largest uh, or the most famous reform Jewish Hebrew University in the United States. And uh, the ones, the, the other side were Arab Christians, American Arab uh, Muslims and so on. And we did that for six years, and then we all disappeared, went in different places. The, uh, the uh, need to understand the unity of spirit, the unity of will, even though we don't have a unity of, of geography, of living together, is, is something that if we don't pay attention to it, when we don't pay attention to it, we disappear. I've got friends who essentially have decided to wipe their face of being Palestinian Americans. And I've got other friends who are passionate about this. Some are listening right now, and some of the children and grandchildren are. That, that uh, uh, trauma, that, that catastrophe that took place continues to take place in a variety of ways. We all see it yesterday. There was uh, this article in the New York Times about uh, some ex-Israeli soldiers and what's happening, how they experienced the Nakba because they were part of, of the system that did that. That, that, needs to, that needs to be acknowledged, that needs to be accepted, and that needs to be moved beyond, moved beyond, because shrinking, as, as the present Israeli government talks about shrinking the conflict, uh, can only take place if you erase the Palestinians. And they're not, nobody's going to erase the Palestinians, no matter where they are, in Australia or in Ponte Gorda, Florida. They are here and they're seeking, they're seeking acknowledgement, justice, peace, and equality. Um, thank you. Um, uh, Nida, I wanted to ask um, um, about what it was like for you to watch the events of earlier this year, and indeed, which continue in East Jerusalem in neighborhoods like Sheikh Jarrah and, and Silwan, where people uh, were forced from their homes. Um, um, uh, talk about, about, about watching that experience as someone who's, whose own family was, was, was forced from their homes and killed. Right, exactly, exactly. So uh, the Nakba for my mother and my grandmother Actually, it continues to exactly what happened in Sheikh Jarrah and the um, the eviction of these families from their homes 
when somebody from Brooklyn, New York can go and claim a residence because if he didn't do it, someone else will do it. And that brought all those stories and memories um, back to life. And I'm, I'm just appalled that the Nakba, especially the massacre of Darius Yassin had a strategic, strategic um, role, the way, <clears throat> the way it happened so that the neighboring villagers and even as far as Yaffa were, were, were scared to death and um, some of them were forced out of their homes, some just left out of fear because they didn't want what happened in Deir Yassin to happen to them. And um, I just um, wanna mention one thing that the, the Nakba on my personal family, on both my mother and my grandmother, had profound psychological and physical ailments. SubhanAllah, both of them died of the same exact ailments, diabetes, hypertension, congestive heart failure. And it, the, the stress and the loss was so, so unbelievable. And now I look back at things that my mother did, which I never really understood how insecure she was about uh, her home losing her apartment, losing this and losing that. And I never really grasped it until um, recently. Uh, one thing about the intergenerational um, effects of the Nakba is that my grandmother's generation was, I'm worried about putting food on the table for my eight children. And sort of like, not that I don't wanna remember the Nakba, of course I remember the Nakba and her stories, the vivid stories of how she was imprisoned, how she was thrown um, uh, in, in Jerusalem and then later on in Jericho and, and doing all of those um, jobs just to survive. My mother was a, a lesser effect. Of course, I, I wanna survive. I, I don't wanna think too much about the Nakba. And my generation, I actually, um, witnessed the Nexa, the 1967. And I remember distinctly as a three and a half year old, the smell of the awful cheese that the UN would give us to eat three times a day. Until this day, I can't eat cheddar cheese because of the smell. That's all I remember, the smell of that cheese. So, you know, it's not, it's, it didn't end, it continued. And with, um, with the Sheikh Jarrah bringing it to, you know, on the center stage, that also um, was, was, was really, really uh, nice to see. So the point that I'm trying to make is that um, with each generation, fortunately for us as Palestinians, they will never erase us. That Zionist view that the old will die and the young won't remember and they will forget, that actually proved to be um, nothing farther from the truth. My children are actually more um, connected to Palestine and me. And I, I only become alive when I actually do go to Palestine. Unfortunately, I was unable to go for, for many years. And um, I don't want to take from people's um, um, time. But I, I do want to mention that point as for us, for people in the diaspora, um, could never go and visit. And the only way I could go visit is as an American citizen. But they're using Corona. I'm, I'm pretty sure it's the Corona. They're using Corona to actually prevent Palestinian Americans from going. Of course, any other American can go if they can establish first line res, uh, relative. But for me, I actually was unable and denied entry four times this summer, citing Corona. But um, that's, a, that's one way actually to keep us away from visiting Palestine. So the Nakba never really finished. It's a continuous process and it's more painful for each uh, generation of us. Um, um, uh, Hassan, I, I wanted to, to, to go back to you. You know, there was this book that was came out a few years ago, which was very influential among American Jews by the Israeli journalist uh, Ari Shavit. And what was interesting to me about the book was that um, Shavit did not actually deny the Nakba. He did something different. He, he talked about what happened in, in, in Lida and, and Ramla, and he said 
it happened, but he said it was either us or them. Um, um, and I think that I, I, my own view is that oh, if you scratch beneath the surface of the denial and of various talking points and you get the, to the underneath it, that's the answer you get. And that's why the book stretched up report because he, he was saying something more honest. It wasn't saying we didn't, these terrible things weren't done. It was saying it's either us or it was either us or them. And I think this mentality still exists, is still very strong, right? And even when you talk about, people talk about refugee return, it's not, at the end of the day, it's not that people will say it's not just, it's not legal. But at the end of the day, they'll say it's either us or them, right? If they return, then we will be the ones who are, who are we, will, we will be the ones who are expelled. We will be the ones who are killed. And I'm sure, again, you've had these conversations. I'm sure you know this. You've heard this. So I wanted to ask you within this context, and I also wanted to ask Dina too, um, what is your vision for return? Um, um, and how does it connect to your larger vision for, for, um, for this land, for, for, for Israel-Palestine? Shall I, shall I? Yes, please, start, start Hassan, yes, please. Certainly. Firstly, the recent history of Palestine, uh, with essentially integrated society where uh, for hundreds of years, Palestine has been occupied by different places. However, it's been a welcoming country because it's the Holy Land. People go there uh, for pilgrimage, people go there for work or whatever. And for all of those years, Palestinian Muslims, Christians and Jews have lived together, have lived together have lived as neighbors, they have not killed each other, they have not, and do that in my, in my class in Jaffa, one of my fellow students was a Jew, Palestinian Jewish boy by the name of uh, Gabriel Samuel. One other student came from a Jewish mother and a Palestinian Muslim family, his name was Zodi Dirhali, his brother was Sami Dirhali, same thing. I don't know what happened to the Dirhalis, but I know what happened to, uh, to uh, Gabriel Samuel, because one of the other students who was in the state course that we did was on duty in Northern Jaffa, which is at the border with Tel Aviv. And at night, he thought he saw on the other side, uh, Gabriel Samuel, and he got up. He got up, he said, Gabriel, Gabriel! And he got shot right here. This is, I, you know, this is, this is the transformation that took place with, with the fear, I think, the fear and the uncertainty and the insecurity of the whole generation of Jewish European immigrants who came, who had essentially been the great-great-grandchildren of 2,000 years of, uh, of uh, anti-Semitism, which kind of peaked with the Holocaust. The, the, the reality is they, they did not go through a, a transformation which was, uh, which was uh, another way. They went through the transformation as we want something that's our own and it cannot be anything other than, than our own. And they believed that. And that's, that's the, the flaw in Zionism. The flaw in Zionism is that Zionists cannot continue to live in the area in peace. It can only survive by being warring and by being very strong. And that's not survival. And history of humankind shows that no group of people who are, no matter how strong, can survive for very long if they're dependent, they're dependent on keeping their foot on the neck of the people there. So, and, and there is really no difference between Jews and Arabs, between Palestinians. Now, today we mix Israeli as if it's 100% Jewish and Palestinians, it's just 100% Muslim. It's not like that. Religion is a private thing. It has not to, but religion has been abused by those who from <coughs> it. And that's what we have to put aside. And whether it's ha gonna happen 10 years, I, I project my, my uh, sentiment or my feeling uh, X years from now, whether it's 20 or 50 or 100 years, there will be one country which is democratic, where church, where synagogue and mosque are separated from the church, where everyone is equal eyes of the law. There are no special preferences for ethnicity or religion or whatever. 
that is going to happen at some point. Anything that continues to delay that essentially will be wasteful of human life, wasteful of time, wasteful of, of alternative constructive humanity. And that's what we have to search for. That's what we have to go for. Uh, and, and it's not a, a two-state solution has been out of the question. I've, I've been visiting Israel and Palestine every three or four years, as has been practically erased for the last 20 years. It has been erased from the minds and the policies of all of the rightist parties in Israel. And I don't want to talk about that, but now when you begin to raise generations on the basis of that people, their people, they don't like that. They don't love their children like they, uh, that, like we love our children. Uh, it, so it, it's, a, it, it's going to be a, a necessary humanitarian educational transformation that will take place, that needs to take place to put us back together, to put us back together. We're, we're in love with the same place. We're in the same roots. We all came from, that's the country that was the, the guardian, that was the guardian of all three, three monotheistic religions. And uh, somehow or other, we, we let it run away. We let it run away and we've got to bring it back. Um, beautifully, beautifully put, uh, Hassan. Um, uh, Dina, I wanted to ask uh, you a, a question that comes from the chat and, and it's, um, it's essentially um, what needs to happen for, uh, for you, for your generation, for Palestinians more generally uh, who live with this trauma to start to heal? So this healing is not going to happen overnight, but I think with enough work, I think with the momentum that um, we're seeing today, we just have to run with it and we have to hold on so steadfastly and tight to that because I think these moments we're living in and witnessing are monumental beyond words. I mean, I think they're super encouraging. I think they're truly defining moments in Palestinian history. There is a lot of trauma and trauma doesn't heal overnight, but along with a lot of generational pain and trauma and grief comes a lot, a hell of a lot of generational strength and resilience and steadfastness that we continue to pass on, like uh, to pass on across generations to our own children, hopefully their children across the diaspora. So I, I just, I, these moments, are really different. The agonizing screams that were once silenced and sh by the you know shackles of nameless blood curdling atrocities aren't being ignored anymore. The world is uncovering its ears to the spine chilling truth. And now it's silent acquiescence that's deemed provocative. Israel's profound depravity and criminality and Zionist theatrics continue to be exposed and the cries for justice for Palestine have never been louder or more glaringly amplified and we owe a lot of that to the younger generations for not staying silent for exactly. ref not refusing you know to just kind of keep it under wraps for continuing to make noise for reaching out and using every platform um, you know, now like the names and words of criminals who rally behind senseless, you know, massacres of Palestinian lives as, as if they're like an amorphous, undifferentiated brown fluff, you know, they're engraved into the consciousness of social media and younger generations for time immemorial. And there will come a day when the pledge to oppose Zionist violence and its exterminatory impulses will be more visceral. It'll be more trendy and innate. It may not be today, it may not be a decade from now, but that day is inevitable. And I honestly have hope for that. And it's because, because we're continuing 
to hold steadfast to that. Um, you know, there will come a day when the world will recall the Palestinian genocide and all of our actions, whether it's speaking up, education, educating others, BDS, platforms and resources like this, you know, our actions and inaction will weigh heavily on us. But, you know, through it all, there's this capacity to overcome unimaginable destruction and grief um, and this immeasurable capacity to resist. And that continues to inspire hope in people everywhere. So I, there, it, you know, healing is a long process, but <laughs> along with, you know, along with all the grief and trauma, there is a huge capacity to, um, to heal. Um, you know, the, the, it reaches beyond the confines of history and the force field of Zionist terrorism. I mean, it reminds us of most indestructible, which is the struggle for Palestinian dignity and liberation and self-determination. And that's impossible to eradicate. It's impossible to ever forget. Um, yeah, the, the old will die, unfortunately. Um, the young can never forget. The Nakba is not forgettable. The Nakba is not erasable. The Nakba is not fixable. <laughs> the Nakba is not over. So we're not just gonna, you know, continue to sit there and pretend like it's just this annual commemorative. No. The youth have been amazing on every platform and they continue to resist stronger than ever before. And the cries for justice have never been more amplified. So that I have a lot of hope um, in that, a lot of hope um, that there will be healing through that as well. Um, Nita, I wanted to ask you about your, your vision for, for what, um, what justice um, uh, would look like for you? What would it look like in Der Yassin, uh, in, in, the, in the village that your, that your, uh, you know, you, that your mother uh, grew up in? Um, uh, and what would it look like more generally? H how, how, how can, um, how do we, how does, how, what, what does justice look like and how does it, how does justice allow for, um, for, um, uh, for, for what does it mean for both the people who experience the Nakba and, and what does it mean for the people who are maybe living, you know, on the, on the territory that was now the, the, the destroyed village of Darius? <laughs> right. Um, <clears throat> well, for me, for me personally, um, justice would be um, to see uh, a one man, one vote country in, in Palestine. Um, unfortunately, Dar Yassin has been erased. It's no longer called Dar Yassin. It's called Gibhat Sha'ol. And where the that is that my grandmother had lived in, my grandfather had built for her, and my mother was born and raised in. Actually, it's a mental institution, so nobody can really get to it. However, if you go surrounding the complex, there are the uh, orchards where, if you saw in the initial video, my mother was picking almonds. And one of the residents came out in, in horror seeing her. And she just looked at him and she said, this is mine. This is my orchard. This is where I grew up and, and played. And immediately he just retrieved and went back. So I, I'd like to see a right of return for us. I was born and raised in Palestine. My, I, I have my grandparents, great grandparents and many generations were born and raised in Palestine. And I can't even go to visit I lost my right, I lost my so-called hawiyya, which is a number that the uh, Israeli gov government issues to Palestinians. And this is the number that you will have for the rest of your lives. It kind of reminds me of the swastika in old Germany where um, Germans would have placed on uh, Jews to identify them and that's what you're reduced to as a number and um, I can't I can't even get that number so that I could go and live in Palestine which is what I would love to I I 
I miss it so much. For 41 years, my, my feeling just, it grew even further. I, I don't belong anywhere and um, I can't visit, I can't go back. So justice for me is the right of return. Justice for me would be the end of block, the blockade on Gaza. Uh, justice for me to see uh, a Palestine that is free, that is uh, free of checkpoints. To go from for a distance of 10 miles, you go through two checkpoints that you are insulted and you're dehumanized and you're reduced to an animal. It, if you, it, those of you who've ever seen the checkpoints of Kalandia, it's like a herd of animals moving through these gates. I'd like to see all of that abolished. I like to see freedom of movement, basic rights for Palestinians, uh, freedom from not having polluted water where um, our, our children are sick with cancers, with so many other problems like ambiguous genitalia. Women cannot carry their babies because of the toxins that are dumped, illegally dumped by settlements in the West Bank. I'd like to see a West Bank that I grew up with, the, the, the mountain, the beautiful mountains, the countryside, uh, we were, free to, to go from one little village to another. You can't do that anymore. Your movement is restricted. Your basic rights are all demolished. That's what I would like to see as, as a Palestinian who were born and raised in the West Bank. Thank you. So. Adina, I wanna go back to you with it. We have a question that I wanna ask because I think it's, a, it's the kind of question that I think some who hear this, this conversation especially Jews will, will, may feel. Um, and I want you to respond to it. Um, um, and the, the, the person says, um, I'm having a very hard time listening to, to Dina Amuti as I fear she is, laying, she is laying the groundwork for future revenge by future generations. So what this person heard was something that was frightening to them. Um, um, uh, and they, they use the word revenge. And, and I, want, I want to give you the chance to, to, to respond to that and 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 to respond and to talk about what your vision, what your vision is for what justice would look like for all people. I mean, speaking the truth, exposing the lies and truth doesn't set a stage for revenge. And this is this is the problem with Palestinian with this whole narrative is that Palestinians have always had these incomprehensible expectations you know if you fight for justice if you advocate justice for them you're advocating revenge i mean i feel like mm -hmm. palestinians are the only oppressed people in the world who are forced to forced to choose between a slow demise if you will or an immediate one between the normality of occupation or the exceptionality of incomprehensible suffering during catastrophic assaults like what we saw in Gaza a few months ago. Exposing the theatrics and the lies doesn't set the ground for revenge. It's setting the groundwork for you know, acknowledging the truth, acknowledging the lies so we can heal. They are, they're expected Palestinians year after year, onslaught after onslaught. As the occupation grows, they're, the, they're expected to guarantee the safety and security of their occupiers while their occupiers are held for absolutely nothing. Uh, if they do resist, if they do speak up, if they want to share their truth and advocate for justice, um, they're expected to do so more politely or just die quietly, you know, that would be the best, while their occupiers continue to kneel on their necks and suffocate them under the stranglehold of imperialism. In what world is, is that um, okay? Where would we, um, accept that for anyone else in the world. 
um, this narrative uh, that's predicated on hatred and this, and it's rooted in a sense of like, projected onto the victims, this needs to end. If we're gonna heal, if we're gonna live amongst each other, it needs to end. Um, this hatred towards the victim, Palestinians living under complete deliberate dehumanizing trauma has become a source of inspiration and authorization for more genocidal killing. This, this isn't, in no way, shape or form is it okay. And we need to speak up and speak our truths without constantly apologizing or doing so politely because mm -hmm. it, it doesn't lay the groundwork for revenge. It lays the groundwork for true sustainable healing. And there is so much need for healing on both sides. So thank you for that. Those are just my humble two cents. Um, thank you. And thank you. I want to thank all three of you. We're, we're out of time. I want to thank all three of you, uh, Hassan, Dida, Dina, for speaking um, uh, about such painful things um, uh, um, uh, and, um, and allowing um, uh, people uh, to, to get a, a glimpse of what uh, carrying that pain looks like um, and, and, and what it's like to watch um, as, um, as the knockback continues. Um, um, and to, thank you to everyone who joined us or listened to this event. Uh, we're glad to share the conversation with you. Please check back at the FMVP website, fmvp.org, for a list of resources relating to the conversation we just had and for announcements of upcoming events, webinars, and podcasts. Thank you all. Until next time. Thank you, Peter. Thank you.